we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, and talking about Hannah and a bunch of other cool things. So before we jump into that, I wanted us to start off with a little brain exercise this morning. We've been able to stand, we're sitting, we're walking around, we're getting our body exercised, but I know it's still only like 10.25 or 10.30, so my brain isn't fully engaged. So I want everybody to fully engage with me this morning. Uh, let's exercise our brain. So I want you all to think back, all right? Let's, let's go back in the Wayback Machine. Think back in your life all the way to the very beginning and try to remember at least one major decision that you have had to make in your life. Now, preferably something you don't mind sharing, okay? So there might be some major decisions that you've made that you don't want to tell anybody about. That's okay. But there might be a few, I hope at least one, that you wouldn't mind tossing it back to me. So think about through your whole life, what's one major decision that you have had to make in your life? I'll give you a minute to think about it. While you're thinking, we are recording, right, Jaden? We're good? Great. Thank you. Okay. I know for some of you, that's a long ways to go. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'll make sure you have plenty of time. For some, not so far. <laughs> all right, so, all right, what's one thing? Somebody throw think, one thing at me that in your life was a major decision that you had to make. Accepting Christ in my life. Wow, yeah, that's a pretty big, that's a huge decision, accepting Christ, all right. Anybody else? Give me a couple more. Did you raise your hand, hand Zana? Was that your hand? <laughs> no, it wasn't your hand raised, Okay. Come on, one more. Give me one more. One big decision you've had to make. I know you've made one, at least one in your life. Getting married. Absolutely. Yes. Changing jobs. Yep. Good. That's right. Maybe declining a marriage proposal. <laughs> All, right. All right. Good. Great. Anybody else before we wrap it up? No? That's all good stuff. That's some pretty big decisions. Jobs, marriages, uh, life-changing decisions, right? Accepting Christ is one of the biggest, is the biggest one of all, really. Life-changing decisions. Now, I've only asked you to share one, but I can guarantee that you'll look back through your life and you probably had a hard time narrowing it down, didn't you? There's tons of major decisions that you have to make in the course of your life, aren't there? Tons of them, several big decisions you had to make. You know, starting a new relationship, we talked about that with marriage. Ending an old one, that's hard to do too. Changing jobs, having a kid, that's a pretty big decision, right? Buying a car, renting and owning a home, those are all just a few things that are pretty big decisions that will affect you for the rest of your life, right? Those are life-changing decisions. It's crazy to think about that, isn't it? But have you ever thought about how often our lives hinge on just the smallest of things, the minute details of everyday life. Ever thought about that? The little things. Not the big decisions, but the little things in your life. Have you ever driven down the road and saw an accident and thought, man, if I'd have left just a minute earlier, that might have been me right there on, that, on the side of the road instead of them. Yeah. If you've ever seen, if you ever, particularly as, as some of you have been on uh, rescue squads or, or fire, volunteer fire departments, whatever the case is, there's tons of little decisions add up to make big ones, right? And just small, minute changes in your life can make radical differences. Being one minute late or one minute earlier, uh, having that one drink as opposed to not having it, all these little things add up. They don't seem big at the time, but they add up. Choices we make, both big and small, radically affect our lives. Now, you know what's really scary about that? If that isn't scary enough, what's really scary about all that is how the choices that you and I make not only radically affect our lives, but everybody else around us. How we think, how we speak, how we act, how we react, 
create a domino effect, doesn't it? For everybody we come in contact with. We are not on our own. We're not in a bubble rolling around life and having our own decisions just bounce back and affect us, are we? Every single thing that we do affects someone else, big or small. If I wake up 10 minutes later than my wife, that means she's going to make coffee and I'm not. And if she's making coffee, that means that it's going to be made differently than maybe I want it. And this domino effects is going to affect the rest of my day and her day, right? One small decision, one small thing can make a big, big, big difference. Sometimes the biggest changes that we have in our lives actually come from the humblest of beginnings. And we see that clearly in our text this week. Right now we're looking together at the book of 1 Samuel. I encourage you to have it up on the screen. Uh, there's Bibles in the pews as well. If you have yours, that's great, as we'll open to that in just a minute. But I want to kind of put some background here because I think oftentimes we just open the Bible and like, well, this is a good story, and we don't understand how they connect, right? I do that a lot. So I just want to kind of connect this. So when you're opening up 1 Samuel, you'll have to understand that this is taking place in the time of Israel's judges. This is the time of chaos in the land. It's bunch, basically a bunch of tribes gathered together trying to come to some sort of governance, and they can't really do it. They're not doing a good job. Because hundreds of years before, God had taken them from slavery in Egypt. And he delivered them out. He sent Moses. He said, take my people out. We all, most of us know that story. We've seen the movie Exodus or whatever. And he takes them out and they go and they sit at a, at a mountain at the foot of the mountain. And God sets the people apart. He says, you will be my people. I will be your God. This is how this is going to work. And from now on, you're going to make decisions based on these rules so that you live the best life you possibly can the life that I have set out for you. And so they continued to move forward. Everything was going okay. And they get eventually, I'll skip a few ahead a few centuries, they get to the promised land that they had been promised many, many years before. And so they get in there and they start clearing things out and they settle in and they are doing a horrible job doing what they're supposed to do. They're not listening to God. They're not following him. They're not doing anything they're supposed to do. And their land was filled with chaos. They were murdering people, they were, they were killing each other in the tribes, they were, uh, uh, they were being run over by other neighbors in their, in their community who was coming in and taking their stuff and stealing their, their produce and everything. It was bad. It was just complete chaos at the time. So the events we have in 1 Samuel from the beginning to the end, and we're going to work through this book and 2 Samuel, I think a little bit of 2 Samuel over the next few weeks, describe how we go from a loose tribal system full of chaos to one powerful nation under one king. That's a big shift in one book, but we're going to go through it. But this morning, we're going to narrow that scope down to the very beginning. We're going to focus on one woman and the choice that she made that helped shape the course of the nation. So let's all look at 1 Samuel 1.1 and work through this passage together. I'm going to go from 1 to verse 8, and then we'll stop and break it down a little bit. And this is an awesome story, by the way. Here we go. There was a certain man of Ramatim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroram, the son of Elohu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph and Ephrathite. Okay, we can dive into all that later. We're not going to do it this morning, but that's a bunch of names that sound weird. Remember Elkanah, okay? He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. All right, we got two problems already, don't we? Verse 2, Elkanah had two wives. Anybody think that's a good idea? Anybody have one, one wife or one relationship and think adding one more is a good thing? No. <laughs> right? That's not a good thing. Problem number one, he had two wives. The other problem was, was that he had a first wife that he loved very much named Hannah, and he had Peninnah. And Hannah couldn't have children, but Peninnah could. We're going to see why that's going to be a problem in a minute. 
Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. If you go to the next slide, Jaden. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? In order to best understand this situation, we need to understand a little bit about the culture at the time, right? In ancient times, childbirth was very, 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 very important, okay? Extremely important. To have multiple children meant that you were richly blessed by God. So Psalm 127 kind of explains this in verses 3 through 5. It says, Don't you see that children are God's best gift? The fruit of the womb, his generous legacy, like a warrior's fistful of arrows are the children of a vigorous youth. Oh, how blessed are you parents with your quivers full of children. And so we see here that Hannah, although loved by Elkanah and his first wife, could not have kids. So if you understand how important it is for, the, for them to have children in those days, you understand Elkanah's situation. She was barren. She couldn't have any children. It was an ultimate tragedy for her day. She would have been considered a failure as a wife and as a woman in general. She would have been considered less than the others in her, in her life, especially Peninnah. Now, Elkanah likely married Peninnah because since Hannah couldn't have children, there was a very important emphasis put on having a male heir, right, in those days. And so Elkanah needed a son, and so he probably have found Peninnah and said, okay, I'm going to marry you, and we're going to have children, and then your, my sons are going to come from you. And that's why Peninnah came into the picture. Now, unfortunately for Hannah, Peninnah didn't have a problem being barren, did she? She was very, very blessed with children. And so she had lots of children, lots of children. And she threw her fertility in Hannah's face over and over and over again. Verse 6 says that she is her rival. She is her rival here. The Hebrew word for rival here means an enemy or adversary, okay? So this wasn't just some friendly banter. Oh, yeah, somebody I kind of don't like every now and then. This is somebody who was constantly in battle with one another. They constantly didn't like each other. So the author is painting a picture of battle between two wives. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? First of all, women, let's take it from your perspective. Can you, can you put yourself in Hannah's position, right? Of being someone who wants something so bad, but you cannot have it, and yet this person that your husband has, also has as his wife has everything, or so it seems. Can you imagine being that one that has nothing compared to the one who seems to have everything? That'd be horrible. And husbands, can you imagine your spouse having a situation where you have two wives and you have one that's, that's blessed that was so greatly with all these children and have another one that you love so much and that you want her to have the best in her life, but she can't have the one thing she most desires. That's a hard space too, isn't it? That's a hard space, hard place to be. So these two wives were battling against each other. I love the word, the Hebrew word here. It says irritate, uh, verse 6. And he, uh, as her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, irritate in Hebrew here means thunder against. That means she is thundering against Hannah. You can imagine that. Imagine when we have like, the thunderstorms a couple of weeks ago on like, Friday night where it just 
raining and pouring, just thunder pounding around us. And you imagine, and maybe you do, have someone in your life that's constantly pounding in your life. Someone that's constantly banging against you where this is over and over and over again and it won't let up. That was Hannah and Peninnah. They would not get along. <laughs> she was a constant thorn in Hannah's side. Now, Elkanah had to travel uh, every year to the tabernacle at Shiloh to worship and to sacrifice, and they bring animals, and they'd, they'd kill them to sacrifice to God. That was the custom of the day. And every year, Peninnah would provoke Hannah, year after year, it says. In this particular year, Hannah had come to the end of it. She could not tolerate it anymore. She said she came to the point where she was in tears. She wept and wouldn't eat. She couldn't even eat anymore. It was so bad. Have you ever had that penina in your life? Male or female. You don't have to be a woman to appreciate this. You ever had that something or someone in your life that bangs against you over and over and over again? Maybe it's a thought you've had over and over again. Maybe it's someone. Maybe it's a task that you have to do at work. Maybe it's a coworker. I don't know. Something in your life that just bangs. Boom, boom. You're like, man, if I could just get rid of that, life would be okay, right? I'm sure Hannah, that's what Hannah was thinking. Man, if I could just get Penina out of here, my life would be okay. But she knew she couldn't. She couldn't get away, get away from Penina nor Penina away from her. They were stuck together. Constantly on her nerves. Something else to think about. Maybe you're a Penina. I'm not going to go too far down that road, but maybe you're a Penina. Maybe, you, maybe you're thinking you're against somebody. I don't want to go too far down that one this morning. Maybe another day. But if you're a Penina, don't be, all right? Let's just put it there for this morning and move on. We all have people who thunder against us sometimes in things we do. Whether it's a person, a job, something can wear us down. And even the strongest person may think, I can handle this. I can take this for a little while. I can take this thing thundering against me. I can take this person that irritates me. I can take this task that just drives me crazy, and I'll do it. I can push through. I'm strong. But even the strongest person will eventually wear down and become raw and get to the point where a hand I got to to the point where she could not take it anymore. We get to the point where we're physically, emotionally, and spiritually broken. And when we get there, we usually fall back into the things that comfort us, don't we? Anybody have a favorite chair at home? Anybody have a favorite chair you sit down in, it's like, oh. It's like being wrapped by, like, charming tissue or something. I don't know, it's just, just hugged and tight. It's so nice and, and comfy, right? Maybe you have a show that you like to turn on. Like, oh, this is my, this is my escape from it all, right? Things that, that allow us to, to step away from the problems in our lives. Because we do that. We turn to food, we turn to drinks, we turn to music, whatever it takes to put the pain behind us and move on. But there are times when even doesn't, that doesn't work. Isn't that right? There are times when there's no chair that's good enough, there's no show that you can binge watch long enough, there's no drink you can have more of, there's nothing, no pill you can take, there's nothing that's going to satisfy or take the pain fully away. Or if it does, it comes back as soon as it's, the effect is worn off of whatever you're trying to comfort it with. And maybe if we're lucky, if we're fortunate, maybe we have a good friend who comes along and tries to fix it. Hannah held Elkanah, her husband, who really cared for her. All right, Elkanah loved this, this girl. He was really in love with her. And he didn't understand, okay? He didn't understand, but he wanted to help her. He saw her not eating. He saw her crying. He said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? The, the Hebrew here, actually, I love the way it says, phrases this. It's not, uh, it's, it says, why is your heart sad? And the Hebrew here is, why is your heart bad? Why are you resentful? Why is something built up inside of you that you can't let go? What, what is it in your life that's draining you down? What is there, Hannah? He's crying out to her. How can I help you? How can I help you? 
Are you mad because you don't have children? He even gets to it. He says, do, are, am I not more to you than ten sons? In other words, I know you don't have kids. Is that it? He's trying to ply her. What's the problem, Hannah? What's going on? And he puts that typical dumb guy question in there, doesn't he? He says, am I not, worth to you, am I not more to you than ten sons? In other words, am I not good enough for you? Why can't you be happy? If me and you are together, why is it not enough? Why is me and you together not enough? Maybe you've been there. Sometimes, husbands to wives, friend to friend, we don't know what to say to make you feel better, all right? I know as a husband and my wife, I don't know how many times I've had this conversation that Elkanah is having to Hannah. Not about children, but about several other things. What is your problem? We saw the video this morning, right, of Tim Hawkins. They say, in conflict resolution, the best way to do it is to ask questions, right? And to, to open up the conversation, right? And I'm more like Tim than I am uh, like a good husband should be because Tim this morning said that the first question he asked was, why are you being a psycho, right? That's the first question I want to get out of my mouth, right? But that's not the right question to ask, is it? Not if you're smart, men or women. That's not the right question to ask. Elkanah didn't know what to say, but he wanted to say something. What is the problem? How can I help you? Let me help you. Elkanah tried his best, but he couldn't solve Hannah's problem. Maybe you've tried to be an Elkanah to your spouse or to a friend. That's a hard place to be because sometimes there is no right thing to say. Right? You ever been there? You're thinking, man, how am I going to help this person through their struggles right now? What am I going to say that's going to make them feel better? And sometimes it comes to the point where there is nothing you can say. There is nothing you can say. You're stuck. You're stuck in there. There's going to be times in our lives where we're not enough. And as frustrating as that can be, it's a good thing because it leaves only one option. Only one option. There's only one true solution when you're drowning this deep in pain like Hannah was. And Hannah knew just what to do. So we're going to look at verse 9 this morning and find out what she did. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose... And by the way, just so we're understanding, when they went and sacrificed and they, they, they were doing this yearly, yearly trip, this was a party. This was a festival. They were eating great lot of food. They were drinking lots of wine. They were getting hammered. It was a, it was a crazy time. That's going to understand, explain to you why this next question comes up. So they had already eaten and drunk. Hannah had had nothing because she could not stomach anything. She had had enough, right? So after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. She got up from the table and she walked off. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Continues in verse 12. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice wasn't heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. He thought, thought she was hammered, thought she was coming in being stupid. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and he said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. 
I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. The only thing capable of pulling you out of the problem that you have in your life, whatever that problem is, whatever that rival is, whatever that thunder against is, whatever the issue is, has driven you to the point where you cannot take it anymore, is God. Hannah knew that God was the author of life. She knew that although she was barren and she could have no children, she knew the only person that could solve her problem was not her husband, was not her friends around town, was not anybody else. It was only God. She knew that she loved her husband, that she appreciated him, she needed him in her life. She knew that. But she knew that he wasn't enough. She knew that she needed the perfect love of God. Her value as a person, her value as a woman, didn't rest in others' opinions. It was in the Lord of hosts. This name of God, the Lord of hosts, by the way, which is one of many, is portraying God as a sovereign over all creation, both heaven and earth, one who's in control of all things. Hannah makes a deal with the Lord of hosts, with God himself. She says, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him to you forever. Now, the Israelite custom was that all firstborn sons be dedicated to God, but Hannah vows that her son's service is going to be lifelong, that it's not going to be for a period of short time. For his whole life, she will be given completely over to God, and he'll be set apart as a Nazarite. That's why the no razor on the head and no strong drink, that's a Nazarite custom, which means that he will be used to serve God and serve God only. Uh, that meant that they could not cut their hair. They wouldn't drink any form of strong drink. They wouldn't touch dead bodies. It was just some customarily ceremonial things to set them apart to worship God. So that's what that meant when we read the part about him not cutting his hair. In her prayer to God, Hannah goes above and beyond the norm. She says, not only is he set apart for you, but he's going to serve you and you alone. Not me, he's not going to come back to me and be my child only, but he is going to serve you forever, for the rest of his life. She has been driven to the point where she has totally submitted everything in her life, including the only thing, the one thing that she cherishes the most. Everything else is gone. She doesn't have a child, but she says, Lord, if you'll bless me with a child, I'll even give that one thing I desire most in my life back to you. The next set of verses, as we read through there, indicates her, her earnestness, doesn't it? She's in the tabernacle praying. Her lips are moving, but there's no words coming out. Now, we don't know if she was lying down on her face. We don't know if she was kneeling. We don't know if she was pacing back and forth, whatever it is. But whatever it was, it was so extreme. She was so much to the point of, of, of vexation. She was so much to the point where she could not get any satisfaction but to come to God that she was seemingly drunk, that she was seemingly walking around to the point where Eli said, you got to go home. You can't be in here drunk. But she, that's not what her problem was, was it? That wasn't her problem. She wasn't drunk. I love her response in verse 15. It's, it's, it's an awesome response. Can we go back to that slide before, Jaden? Let's, let's look back at verse 15 together. He said, put away your drink. 
15 says, But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Hannah hadn't been put, hasn't been putting anything in her life. She had been pouring everything out to the Lord of hosts. So often we try to mask our problems with junk. We try to put in whatever it is that's going to fix us, right? Whatever we think is going to be the thing that's going to make us feel better. But whatever the system, whatever the substance, everything will fall short eventually. The only thing, the only thing that will change your life is by pouring everything out as Hannah did to the Prince of Peace, to the Lord of all creation. That's why Jesus told his followers in Matthew, he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest comes when we submit to the king. Our future changes when we choose to empty ourselves and are filled with Christ. Let's look what happened after Hannah's prayer. The last slide there, Jaden. They rose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Verse 19 is one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, and the Lord remembered. Now, the word remembered here doesn't mean that God just forgot and all of a sudden, oh yeah, there's Hannah and her problems. I need to go get her again, right? I, for, I forgot her. She's went off to the side. She was struggling for a few years. I need to go pick her back up and, and give her what she was asking for. That's not what that meant. It means the Lord extended grace into Hannah's life. God didn't have to open her womb. He didn't owe her anything. But he gave her the one thing she desired the most. It shows that God cared enough about one single solitary Israelite girl to provide for her in her time of need. One woman among thousands. One barren woman. That wasn't, a, that wasn't an uncommon problem. But it was one woman who poured out her problems before God, who had come to the end of herself had come to the point where she could no longer take it and poured everything out before him. And he extended his grace to her. It shows that not only does God care about us in our time of need, but it also shows the power that our choices hold when we allow God to work in us. I was saying, so what? He let her have a boy? Samuel, what's the big deal with that? Hannah's choice of radical submission in that moment, that time of need, at that time of day and that night when she was praying out before the Lord allowed her to have Samuel. And Samuel would go on to be the most influential man of his day. Samuel would go on to anoint Israel's first king, Saul, and the second king, King David. And Israel as a nation would go on to become one of the most powerful and influential countries at that time in the whole world under King David. God used Samuel's obedience to bring about the most peaceful and prosperous time in Israel's history. And all of it was made possible by the choice Hannah made that night.
sometimes the little things, the small choices that seem inconsequential at the time can make the biggest of differences in your life. And by a product of that, the lives of those around you. Now, I don't know what the future holds. I'm not a a prophet in that regard. I don't know if any of you will change the course of history of our nation one day. Maybe. Stranger things have happened. But I do know that when we choose to radically submit to Jesus, our eternal and our earthly future is changed for the better. And God will use us to become agents of gospel transformation in the lives of our neighbors, of our friends, of our children, of our grandchildren, so that generations are affected by the decision that we make. This morning, we celebrate together an all-powerful, all-knowing God who has been actively involved in history from the beginning of time and who earnestly loves and cares for each and every single one of us, so much so that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Jesus knew, God knew, that there was no way for us to be able to make it to heaven on our own. There was no way for us to live the type of life that we are meant to live here on earth. There was no way that we could be future shapers without allowing him in our lives. And the only way that was going to be able to be processed and happened was because of the life and the death of Jesus. That's the only way. There's no other way that you shape the future of this world in a positive and eternal way without Jesus. God sent his son because he loved us, because he knew that there was no way we could make it on our own. Each and every single one of us are sinners. Each and every single one of us have made mistakes, and we will continue to make mistakes. I make mistakes every day. All of us do. Those mistakes add up. Little decisions we make add up. And they deny us what God wants us to have, which is abundant eternal life. But he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. He sent his son to live a perfect, sinless life. To die on a cross, to take on all that sin, all the shame that we've experienced, all the mistakes that we have made, all the things that stop us from being what God wants us to be, from being the future shapers that he wants us to be, from being the change agents that he wants us to be in this community. Jesus satisfied all those requirements. He died so that we did not have to pay the price that we can never pay anyway so that we can have that eternal abundant life now, here, to be agents of change here and now. He made the way, and only he. We worship a God who can open the womb, who gives hope to the hopeless, and can even bring forth life from the pit of death. And he wants to use you to make a difference today. The question is, will you let him? Will you let him? So I have two questions for you as we finish up. For believers, what's the one area in your life that if you give it over to God that could change the course of your life and the life of your children? Think about that one. I'll give you two one more time. What's the one area, because this is what I want you to think about it this morning, think about it today, think about it this week. What's one area in your life that you've been holding back on? You're thinking, I got this, God. I don't need you to get this. I gave you, I gave you my heart, but the rest of me I kind of can take care of. What's the one thing 
there's always one in your life that if you were to give it completely over to God, as Hannah did that night, that could change the course of your life and the life of your children.